0: Um, the reading this morning is Luke 12, verses 13 to 34, and it's on page 1045 in the church Bibles. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, let my brother divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man? "'Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you?' "'Then he said to them, "'Watch out. "'Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. "'Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions.' "'And he told them this parable. "'The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest.' "'He thought to himself, "'What shall I do? "'I've no place to store my crops.' then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my supplies, my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then... Who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, with whosoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They've no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Gillian. Thank you, Sophie. Great to be with you again this morning. Welcome to any visitors who are here today. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Tom. I'm uh, the vicar here. And uh, I'm preaching on every preacher's favourite topic, money. <laughs> So that's something to look forward to. But it's worth saying it is also one of Jesus' favourite topics. He knows how important it is. So it's right and proper that it comes up uh, in any series looking at one of the Gospels as we are looking at Luke. But if you are not familiar with what we've been doing this term, the series is called On Mission with Jesus. We've broken for the last couple of weeks for Easter, leapt forward to the end of Luke's Gospel, and now... Uh, We're coming back to where we left off and what I would call the home straight of this series. For this is where the course really gets serious, this mission training course that we've been on together. The mission itself is in sight. And so having cast the vision in this passage, Jesus then addresses the conditions on which we can take part in that mission. And in doing so, he's removing those final barriers to the kingdom being advanced. And today's, yes, an uncomfortable one, yet also necessary. Because in many ways, by addressing this topic, Jesus addresses the heart of discipleship, which is the condition of our heart. And we're calling this um, final part of the sermon series, Resourcing the Mission, reflecting the fact that Jesus' call on us is not simply to sort of elicit a vague good intent that we might talk a good game. It's for us to put our money and everything that we have where our mouth is, to follow through on the vision that we've received. And in so engaging with that topic, well, what we're really doing is engaging in a spiritual battle. Because if we win it, Our mission can be effective, but if we lose it, Satan's wish for us to stop us in our tracks will succeed. So let's pray, because we are looking at what God has called us to, and yet we are confronted with an evil one who wants to hinder us, who wants to neutralise us. So let's pray for God's help now. Father, we thank you that Jesus spoke words of truth, words of encouragement, words of comfort, but also words of challenge. Might you speak to us now through his words, and as I share my words, reflecting on them, that we might become ready for all that you're calling us to, excited by all that you're calling us to, ready for whatever it might cost us, excited at the harvest it will bring. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so on with the sermon. And um, I have to say that this is one of those passages where Jesus, to my mind, intentionally challenges uh, us by, I think, almost overreacting or seeming to overreact to actually someone in a story that we instinctively feel some natural sympathy with and in doing so what he does is penetrates beyond our surface reaction the one that we first find ourselves with as we read a particular story to actually the idolatry that lies beneath and so for me it's in the same category as Uh, stories that we've looked at in the last year or two, or even in the last month or two, like the story of Mary and Martha that Paloma preached on. If you know that one, we find ourselves, don't we, when we read it, feeling sympathy for Martha, identifying with her as she does all of that work to try and put on a great meal for Jesus and his disciples. It reminds me too of the rich young man where we feel sympathy for him as he's told to sell everything he has and give to the poor. We find ourselves, as we read those passages, almost initially offended at what Jesus seems to be saying, offended on their behalf. But where we end up, as we really start to absorb what he's really saying underneath all that, finding ourselves ultimately inspired and the trigger for this teaching is one that's certainly very familiar to me as a father of two young children, sibling rivalry. And though my children could certainly relate to this. So think about your own children or perhaps your own childhood and what it was like. So for me, that, those words, it's not fair. I want my fair share of the bath. I want my fair share of the sofa. I want my fair share of the pudding. I want my fair share of the toys. I want my fair share of your time, daddy and mummy. And I want to have my teeth cleaned first. I want to be first up the stairs. (laughs) And whatever it is, one wants, the other is sure to want too. Sibling rivalry, we all understand it. And uh, and yet here, it seems at first sight to be uh, fairly understandable too. But we mustn't ignore the context of the passage, which the previous section of Luke 12 actually gives to us. It's a clue as to why Jesus responds as he does. For he's just spoken into the realities of the mission for his followers, which is persecution, even for some, to the point of death. It's hard hitting stuff, which highlights the fact that the interjection that follows from this man who puts his hand up and asks Jesus a question or asks Jesus to intervene in his situation is surely missing the point. It reveals that he's not really been listening to anything that Jesus has just been saying. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with his desire to have his share of the inheritance, which in that culture could have been, Uh, If he's the youngest son, uh, half of what the elder son would get. Or perhaps if they were a more modern uh, family, perhaps it would have been an equal share of what he's due. However, what we also know is that Jesus can see into people's hearts. Also, we can ask whether it really is appropriate that he tries to enlist Jesus as his arbiter. And if Jesus can see into people's hearts, as he shows time and time again in the Gospels and in our own lives, if we're honest, well then he knows that this man needs this lesson. He knows, in fact, that the whole crowd needs this lesson because he knows what people's hearts are like and that just as materialism is a preoccupation for the man who interrupts him, so it is for us all. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's true. So the lesson of the man in the parable which follows is not that he's a discouraging exception that needs to be made an example of, rather that he is simply a man of the world, which in biblical terms is not a compliment. Because the Bible, and Jesus in particular, uses the language of two kingdoms, one in which Satan is reigning and the other in which Jesus is king. And the question he asks of us time and time again is which one are we following? Which side are we on? And that's why I think the main point we should take from this parable is not that our death could be imminent, and I hope for none of us it is, but rather it should flow from the warning that precedes the power in verse 15 watch out jesus says be on your guard against all kinds of greed this is the language of warning and he goes on life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions so the key teaching here is not about our mortality instead it's a prophetically countercultural statement about the meaning of our existence. He's saying that contrary to what his listener's culture and our culture assumes, wealth and possessions are not the point of life, are not the purpose of life. Rather, as the truth contained in the title of a book that had a real impact on me actually as a young teenage believer, people matter more than things. What a great title for a book. It was a book all about a youth centre started in the east end of London and uh, I know the east end of London so I support the same football team found there but a book about one of the most deprived areas in Canning Town where they started a youth centre called the Mayflower Centre and it had a massive impact and I learned so much from that book and The man, George Burton, that it was about, and all that he'd done. Because it was a ministry that blessed so many young people from so deprived families and areas who actually came to know Jesus and had their lives transformed. And yet it also taught me something else. That actually, not only if we give our life to God... Can we see something truly wonderful, something truly worthwhile be achieved if we follow his call? But also that the very best principle we can follow is one of living by faith. Something that I went on to discover was not simply a necessary response to uh, of tight financial challenge, but rather a kingdom value that opens us up to God's extravagant unmerited grace and actually that principle living by faith is one that has blessed so many christian ministries i commend it to you because it forces us to trust god and in doing so we learn to trust him in everything else and our faith grows and when our faith grows anything is possible god can do incredible things so, the problem Jesus is highlighting in this parable is not the man's abundant harvest or his barn rebuilding, actually. It's the limit of his aspirations and the complete absence of any intention of sharing his blessing with anyone else or even thanking the God he gave it to him. And more fundamentally, what such selfishness shown in this man here also indicates is actually a rejection of God himself and ultimately of God's ownership of our resources, that it's his wealth, not ours. For the principal picture that Jesus has repeatedly painted through the Bible is of a God who is hugely generous and merciful, not least in sending Jesus himself to die for us but who therefore expects generosity and mercy in return, out of great gratitude for what he has done for us, which is everything, everything we truly need. And so it's about recognizing his kingship and that life therefore consists not of building our own kingdom, but of recognizing our purpose and our privilege in serving His, Which is why in the passage that follows, Jesus summarizes the purpose of existence like this, seeking his kingdom, or as Matthew puts it, seeking first his kingdom. And the point is this, a right relationship with our creator does not increase our security or our anxiety, but rather in joyful dependence, it banishes all selfishness and fear. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be free of selfishness? Don't we want to be free of fear, free of anxiety, free of that sense that we're not quite living authentically, that we're not quite practicing what we preach and believe? So it's a worldview rooted in two crucial fundamental principles that Jesus is teaching us here that are vital for anyone who wants to play their part in God's mission. Number one, that we're stewards, not owners. And secondly, that true satisfaction comes not through keeping God's blessing to ourselves, but rather in the joy of using it to bless others as a gift that keeps on giving as a recycling of that grace. And this helps to explain how it is that a life of generosity does actually reduce anxiety. We might assume, or certainly those uh, without faith might assume that being generous makes us more worried about how we're going to pay for the bills and whatever else we need to pay for. But actually Jesus is saying this, without their generosity, we end up being possessive of our wealth, thinking it's ours to cling on to, which actually causes us anxiety, It leads to idolatry, so much so that our possessions actually instead end up possessing us. Do you remember the startling reply of, John D. Rockefeller, who at the turn of the century, between the 19th and 20th, owned 1% of the entire wealth of the United States, which made him in real terms richer than anyone else alive today. And this is what he said in answer to the question, how much money is enough money? And his tragic Answer. yet we also have to say a typical answer of people then and people today was this. Just a little bit more than I've got. However much you have, you always want more. You're never satisfied. So what is an idol? That certainly is. It's anything that we want more than God. And anything that we feel we simply can't live without. And which ultimately and tragically will leave us never satisfied, never contented, never at peace, and never feeling fully able to enter into whatever God is calling us to. We become like a soldier who's not willing to go into battle, we become like a midfielder in a football team that's not willing to go into a crunching tackle. It's useless. We're no use to the captain, the manager, our commanding officer. God says you've got to be those who let go of thinking it's yours and recognize that power comes when we offer everything to him. So a life of true freedom, what does it look like? Well, it's the one modeled by Paul in the letter to the Philippians. He said this, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whether in need or in plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. And the answer, I can do all of this through Him who gives me strength. If we trust in God, we can do anything. We can live with anything. We can be content in any situation. And we can be supremely confident that whatever growing the kingdom looks like in our lives and in the world around us, we can play our part. And that's why Paul also, just earlier in that letter, said, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Because it goes against everything our culture assumes about wealth and worry. And that final sentence there about the peace of God guarding our heart and our mind parallels what Jesus then goes on to say here in our passage. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Because both Paul and Jesus demolish the idea that true treasure is in riches. Each night I read a story, a Bible story to Harry taken from a lovely book called Stories Jesus Told. If you've got a three-year-old, it's a brilliant book. Harry's favorite story in that is this. It's the precious pearl it's called. Now, I'm not sure he completely understands it, if I'm completely honest. But what he does understand is this, that it's a picture of complete, unadulterated joy. In it, the merchant sells everything, including his house. He's got a five-story house. He's got a, a garden, a pond with fishes in it. So this is uh, what is the good life in his time. Uh, He sells his clothes, minus his underwear, I should point out. He even sells his special hat with a feather on it. He sells everything, his food, his drink, his whatever else he's got, his donkey, his camel. Why? Why does he do it? To buy that pearl And in the final scene that Harry loves, the man is leaping for joy on his way, clutching that precious pearl. So what is Jesus saying? Is he making a point about investment in jewellery as opposed to any other form of investment as opposed to real estate or anything else? No. No more than he's making a point about methods of agriculture in the parable of the sower. What he's saying instead is that what's truly of value which is the joy, the peace, and the freedom and the fulfillment of having God in our life and allowing his spirit to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. But this point is one that stands against two crucial principles that are precious to our increasingly secular culture. We're all going to recognize them, which are these. One is that wisdom and strength lies in independence how we as a society how we seem to esteem independence someone who does it on their own is that the american dream is it the british dream i don't know but we relate to it yet jesus says truly i tell you anyone who will not receive the kingdom of god like a little child will never enter it what is jesus saying here is he saying, wasn't childhood great? If only we could go back in time. Now, some of us might agree with that, that would be nice. But in a society that he was in, where infant mortality was so high and children were seen and not heard, to be honest, childhood probably wasn't that great. But his point, of course, is not about that. It's not about desiring weakness and innocence. It's about recognizing that what is by necessity true of children, that they are dependent on others, needs to be true of us and a picture of how we relate to and depend on God. You see, what it's saying here that speaks so radically into our culture is this. We need to see dependence, not as a sign of weakness, but as the route to true security, true glory, true wisdom, rooted in God's provision and care. And related to that, there's a point here about control. Again, another buzzword of our culture today. The desire for control is one that I think that increasingly stresses us as we respond to an increasingly unpredictable and unstable world. And so some of us become almost obsessive about the few things that we feel we can control, that we can take control of, whether it's our bank balance or our exercise regime, our diary or our weight, or all sorts of other things. But then there are others of us who actually react to that world, that unstable world that feels out of control with instead a strategy of distraction or escape. It's not so much the mantra of the rich farmer in the parable, but almost its opposite. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And yet Jesus, in our passage, tells us that possessiveness about anything increases our fear and our anxiety, because they become must-haves in a context in which nothing is certain. For true peace and true security lies in placing our trust and confidence in the loving, gracious arms of God. So, let's finish then with the application of all of this to our mission as disciples and our calling as a church and actually the very first sermon of this series actually set the context there if you remember it we saw those first four disciples Peter and Andrew James and John four fishermen led by Jesus to put their net out to catch in a particular place in the lake after they'd spent all night and caught nothing and what happened they had this incredible catch of fish But what was Jesus saying? Was he saying that follow me and you're going to have that every time you go fishing? Was he saying follow me and your business will soar? Was he saying follow me and you'll never have to worry about money again? No. He was saying something quite different. Follow me and you can be fishers of men. Follow me and the kingdom that you seek can be brought into being by you. Follow me and you can know peace from worry about possessions because you will discover about the God who always provides. So the miracle of the fish was purely a metaphor. Rather, he was promising them that they too would become fishes of men, that they too would play their part in the growing of the kingdom. So he continues Jesus saying, do not be afraid in our passage, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And it's precisely because of that, that we can afford to give away our possessions to the poor, because we already have the one thing that makes our life worth living, the kingdom. So why cling on to or idolize anything else For these are kingdom values. This is a kingdom mindset with a kingdom theology that we have in part now what we will one day have in full. So when we set our hearts and our minds on that future kingdom, as Colossians 3 urges us to do, whilst rejoicing in the signs of Jesus' present kingdom, then true joy can be found. Life. It's not about our possessions. It's not about food. It's not about drink. It's not about clothes. It's not about houses or cars. Those things, if you like, are just the wrapping paper of what life is all about. And life's not even about family or church or sex or football or Brexit or anything else that we might think is important. It's in our heavenly destiny where we shall one day be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have that hope in us, the Bible tells us, purify themselves as he is pure. And as Jesus put it, provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. For that is now our home country, we're now citizens of heaven. We're merely ambassadors here on earth. What do ambassadors do? They're not looking for payback for themselves. They simply faithfully do the will of their government. So what does that mean for us as individuals and as a church? It means the mission is everything. Invest in the kingdom, for that's where true satisfaction, true integrity as Christians, surely lies. And that means as we reflect on resourcing our mission, responding to the revelation of the vision that God has given us here at St. Paul's, let's respond readily, let's respond generously, let's respond passionately, let's respond enthusiastically, whatever the next steps in that vision and that mission might be. Responding to whatever financial challenge, manpower challenge, skill challenge, time challenge, faith challenge, discipleship challenge it might bring. For that is what seeking first the kingdom actually looks like. It's not a statement of good intentions, it's prayerfully making that vision happen in grateful dependence on the God who has given us all things. We'll come back to that in the weeks to come. Next week, Daniel's going to be preaching in particular about that challenge we've been given to plant a church in deep cut. If you think that comes easily, you're wrong. It won't. We'll get lots of help from the diocese, from the developers. But it's a massive challenge. The last time this church planted another church was 40 years ago. Now, there's no disgrace in that. But it does highlight that this new challenge, this new calling is a a once-in-a-generation moment. It's truly a special opportunity and a true test of our devotion and our faith in God's purposes will be how we respond. Whether we're feeling the call to join the planting team or to push forward with the mission opportunities that we have here in the community around us at St Paul's, what I really encourage us all to do is to seek to play our part. Come along to those three training sessions about church planting on Wednesdays, the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd of May. Whether you want to be in the plant or not, because the whole point is as we take on that mentality, that urgency, that sense of desperation, of willing to think outside the box, go the second mile, Build relationships with our community because if we don't, the church will fail. Well, if we take that hunger, if we take that entrepreneurial spirit, if we take that desperation and apply it wherever we are, well, then the kingdom will come. Let me finish with that final, that first passage that we looked at in this first sermon of the series. Peter the amazing catch of fish. What did he do when he saw that? He got on his knees and said, sorry, for I am a sinful man. And we need to do the same. We need to do the same thing as we're confronted by Jesus' teaching on wealth and on worry. And we we need to acknowledge that we fall short but do so in the full confidence that he forgives and that he gives us through his spirit the power to change. So what we're going to do now as we respond to what we've heard, we're going to sing a song first of all. I do invite the band to come up just now and to, to lead us in that. The song is an expression of our faith. It's an expression of our willingness to offer our lives to him. Then after that, we're going to have a moment of confession in which we say sorry. Say sorry for the way that we cling on to our wealth, for the way that we idolize it, for the way that we idolize anything that isn't God. And we're going to receive the forgiveness of a God who washes us clean. So we're going to stand and sing this song now and then will respond in confession after that.